you guys awake? Because we get to do something exciting this morning. We get to finish the first chapter of James. That's what, we made it through a whole chapter while Toby was gone. <clears throat> the Danger of Self-Deception, that's the title this morning. Have you guys ever deceived yourselves? <laughs> yeah, if we're honest, we do it a lot. Humans have a great capacity for self-deception, de- right? I, I can fix it. You know, I know where I'm going. I can stop when I want to. I don't have a problem. I'm not angry. I would never do that. No. I'm not attracted to them in that way. It'll never happen to me. People watch the Olympics. I could do that. (laughs) Self-deception is dangerous, though. It really is. And it can never be more dangerous than when we deceive ourselves about our relationship with Christ. You know, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John said, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Self-deception can lead us to waste time and money to just end up hiring a professional to do the job anyway. Or it can lead us to waste time and gas driving around in circles. It can lead us to hurt ourselves because we thought a little too highly of our parkour skills. It can lead us deeper into addictions that ruin our, our relationships and our health. It can lead us into sins that we never thought possible. But worst of all, self-deception can lead us to hell. And James didn't want that for anyone. And so he, like Paul and John and Jesus, made an effort to help people understand that a genuine Christian isn't someone who just reads the Bible and listens to sermons and Christian radio and podcasts and talks hypothetically about how important God is to them and what they would do for God. But a Christian, a genuine Christian, is someone who has believed on Christ and repented of their sins and been transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They become someone who does, who obeys who changes. Which brings us to James 1, verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God, we ask that this message would be clearly understood 
that it would be uh, clearly taught and received today, that it would be about what you say, that we would get it. Help us to hear it and understand how to do it and then to have the courage to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, our first question might be, well, deceiving yourselves of what, James? What are you saying we're deceiving ourselves about? And I think I made my answer clear in the introduction. One who is a hearer but not a doer is deceiving themselves about their standing with God. Their faith is dead. It's not genuine. And, and we, we know that's... I believe we know that's what James is teaching because of what he says later in chapter 2. And so he gets more into that discussion about dead faith and what that means. And so I don't want to make that the focus of this morning because that's more of the focus of the end of chapter 2. But what James does here is he introduces this concept and he introduces it along with an illustration of what it looks like, which was in verses 23 and 24. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Some translations would say he immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, and of course, that sounds ridiculous. And the thing about it is, it's not that this person is literally forgetting who they are or what they look like. It's that the problem is that they choose, after what they see, they choose to do nothing about it. And uh, Sam Alberry shared his own experience in this way with mirrors. He talks about how there have been countless times when, when I've been about to head out into the day and I've glanced at myself in the mirror only to discover that presentation-wise, I'm a bit of a disaster. There's a blob of ketchup on my shirt or my sweater is on inside out or my tie is dramatically askew or my top is displaying a visual record of everything I've eaten for the past 12 hours. And what do I do next? Having seen the issues, I rectify them. The clothing is dabbed, the jumper reapplied more carefully, the tie straightened up, or the top changed. He says, this is why we use mirrors. They show us a problem, so that we can sort it out straight away. What we generally don't do, or at least should never do, is what the character in James' little parable does. Nothing. It's foolish to be someone who goes away from the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. Having realized that we look a public embarrassment, we don't then ignore that fact. Otherwise, there really was no point in looking at the mirror in the first place. It's pretty simple, right? You look in a mirror, see what's wrong with you, and then you fix it. That's what mirrors are good for. Now, some people want to use mirrors in a different way. They want to just use it to admire themselves, right? But that's not going to work very well with this mirror because the mirror that James is referring to is the Word of God. And I don't know about you guys, but when I read the Bible, it's pretty hard to start admiring myself because the Bible doesn't show me how pretty I am. It shows me how ugly I am. And that's why I need it so much because if I walk around too long without looking at it, I start to think I'm prettier than I really am. And then I look back into this mirror and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. And when it comes to the mirror of Scripture, I think there's really two big mistakes that we make with it. And these are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and one of them is that we use it as a vanity to admire ourselves. 
Of course, Scripture does lift me up when I'm down. Praise God. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago, like how it gives us what we need. And, and so God brings in his words from Scripture and, and to keep me from putting myself too low and acting like I'm not valuable. And he also keeps me from lifting myself up too high and becoming arrogant and prideful. But for sure, like God's word, the mirror of Scripture is not meant to be for our own personal adoration. That's not, for a Christian, that's not a proper use of the spiritual mirror or the physical mirror. Yet, for whatever reasons, we find ways to read Scripture that lead us to admire ourselves. And we read stories about people like David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, who is considered the wisest king of Israel's history. And we read about some of their sins and we think to ourselves, oh man, I would have never done that. You know, we turn our noses up at the Israelites complaining in the wilderness or, or being afraid to go into the promised land because of the Canaanites. And we say, they were such fools. Yes, they were fools, but fools like us. See, the mirror of Scripture is not meant for our personal admiration. But on the other end, of the spectrum, we make another mistake, and that's that we ignore the mirror altogether. And why would we do that? Well, because we don't like what we're going to see. Kent Hughes shared a story about a missionary in the bush who had uh, hung a little mirror from a tree so that he could um, so that he could shave and. One of the local witch doctor happened to walk by and look into the mirror, and when she saw her hideously painted features, it scared her, and she jumped back, and, and then she started uh, bargaining with the missionary to try to get him to give her the mirror, and he wasn't having it, but eventually he gave in, and he gave her the mirror, and he said, here, you can have it, and she takes it and just slams it on the ground and says, there, now it won't be making ugly faces at me anymore. But sometimes... Our approach to our spiritual mirror is to ignore it. Have any of you guys ever avoided a mirror for a while because you just didn't, you just didn't want to look? You know, we want to keep that picture of ourselves that we have in our imagination. And it's like avoiding a scale, right? Like if, if the last time I weighed myself was in high school, then that's the weight I get to keep, right? You know, and so police officers are looking at people's driver's license like, what? 165. Sir, I'm going to need you to step out of the vehicle. But here's the problem, and we all know this deep down, is that avoiding the mirror doesn't change reality. And so avoiding Scripture because of what it might show us or, or require of us, it, it might give us the opportunity to live in a fantasy world for a little bit longer, but we're not fooling anybody else, especially God. Scott McKnight put it this way, the person who hears the word but does not do is like the person who sees his or her own sinfulness but does nothing about it. So what are we to do instead? That's where verse 25 comes in. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. 
See, rather than looking into it and seeing and then walking away and doing nothing about it or just ignoring, looking at it altogether, we are supposed to look into this mirror and then take action. And we're supposed to look intently. And so often we open our Bibles with no intent other than scratching something off of our to-do list. And when we really think about it, we all know the difference between looking at something and looking at something intently. You know, ladies, how many times has a guy in the house gone and opened the fridge and be like, where's the ketchup? You're like, it's there, just look. I don't see it anywhere. You know, eventually you give up, you walk in there and you're like, you see it immediately. And you're like, here it is. We weren't looking intently. Same thing happens with my kids when we're doing those like, where's Waldo type of books. You know, they just want to scan the page and they don't see anything. So they just want to give up and move on. I'm like, hey, stop. Look carefully. Slowly work your way over every part of the page. I think another good example is cleaning the car. You know, some, some people, one kind of person just gets the loose trash out and calls it good, right? Ah, it's clean. You know, and then, uh, or they wash it and they just get the mud off and they're like, yeah, it's good. It's done. And then the person looking with intent comes in, right? And they spot like 45 smudges on the inside and all the little nooks and crannies with crumbs and dirt and things and like 90 imperfections on the outside. And the person looking with intent is walking around and they're examining and they're bending over. They're looking at things from different angles and different lighting. Then they get their flashlight out and they're getting all up close. And then out comes the magnifying glass, And that's the way we would want it done if we hired a professional to detail the car, right? We paid them to do it. But when it comes to the Bible, it's like we think only pastors are the ones who are supposed to look intently at Scripture. They're the ones who are supposed to examine the context and look up the cross-references and read commentaries. But James is making it clear here that this kind of study and meditation of God's Word is for all of us. It's the only way to read a book like the Bible, I'll remind us of something from one of my, my previous sermons when I talked about the nine marks of biblical interpretation. We were learning how to interpret the Bible. And I said, one of them was to look carefully. And if someone, if, if you were diagnosed with cancer and someone said, here, the doctor said, here, uh, this is all you need. You just take this book and follow this book. And if you do what it says, then you'll be okay. You'll live. I don't think you would just skim over it and read the, the main points, would you? You would be digging into that book. You would be reading everything. You'd be highlighting and rereading to make sure you didn't get anything wrong. You'd read the fine print and every nook and cranny that you could find in that book because you know if you follow it, it'll give you life. Well, that's how we have to read the Bible. With intent, with the intent of letting it transform our lives because this book gives us life. That's what it is. Fall in love with it. And when it comes to being hearers and doers, not forgetful, as James is talking about, looking intently at Scripture is how we keep from forgetting it. It's easy to forget the movie that you were watching while you were folding clothes or doing chores. It's easy to forget the, the drawing that your child made that you just, have, just glanced at as you walked by. It's easy to forget the comment your spouse made while you were on your phone. It's easy to forget the sermon that you heard while you were thinking about something else. 
But it's hard to forget that movie that you watched with your eyes glued to the screen the whole time. Or the drawing that your child made that you sat down with them and examined and pointed out all the little things that you appreciated about it. It's hard to forget the comment your spouse made when you put the phone down to give them undivided attention and eye contact. It's hard to forget the sermon that was preached on a day when you intentionally went to bed early and got a good night's rest and woke up that morning praying that God would give you a heart and ears to hear and receive his word. Those are hard to forget. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 describes this art of intent. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I love this passage teaches us so much about the value of repetition. Right? And where we need God's word, because we think too highly of our ability to retain some things sometimes. Like we need to be told things over and over and over and over. Like just hearing something once usually doesn't do the job. We're in the middle uh, with the youth group of going through a series on Christian sexuality. And, and one of the guys that was interviewed uh, was talking about uh, how parents often approach having the sex talk with their kids. And how they, they often make it this one time like long talk, right? Of course, the reality is that many don't do it at all. And many that do wait way too long, and they do it way after their kids have, have learned all kinds of stuff. And, and maybe they even approach it the wrong way, but that's a topic for another day. But he said that it's better to have 100 one-minute conversations than one 100-minute conversation. We need repetition. Leslie and I saw this truth on the mission field where like the old, the old kind of pattern that churches were doing was like, hey, let's get a huge group of people and send them somewhere once a year and, and do this thing or share the gospel or whatever. And it wasn't, that wasn't conducive to discipleship and multiplication. Like what the unreached people groups needed was a few people who would go as often as possible. Because we need God's word and we need it often. We need it repeated. We need it not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Right? Not just at, at, at the beginning of the day, but at lunch and dinner and, and bedtime. And not just in front of us, but beside of us, behind us, under and above us and inside of us. We Christians, we cannot be the people who don't read the word of God. And we can't be the kind of people who read it and finish it and then close it and act like, well, I'm done. What do I do now? What now is open it again. If you found gold, if you found a gold deposit, would you just grab a handful and be like, eh, I'm just going to leave the rest. I'm good. And go home. No. 
Like you would stay there and dig and dig and dig and extract everything that you could. And you wouldn't leave that spot of land until you felt like you were sure that there's nothing else there. And the beauty is that you're never going to find the bottom of this gold mine. And it is more valuable than gold anyway. Psalm 19.10, they, they, God's words, are more desirable than gold. And even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. We can't underestimate how valuable God's word is. It should be becoming more and more clear in the times that we're living in right now. And you know another thing that's so amazing about God's law? James describes it. He says it's a law of freedom. Now, that sounds contradictory to us. Law of freedom. That's weird. That doesn't sound right. But when we stop and really think about it, it does make sense. I think Sam Alberry put it well. He said, Western society tends to think of freedom purely in terms of the absence of restriction. The idea is that if we remove all constraints, we end up with freedom. So the imposition of rules and boundaries is a restriction of freedom by, design, by definition. But in the Bible, real freedom is not the absence of any and every constraint, but rather the presence of the right kind of constraint. And he gives an example. He says, removing a fish from water does not give it more freedom, but less. It is designed to live in the water, not apart from it. Freedom from water is a removal of constraint, but it is also, for a fish, a complete misunderstanding of what freedom really is. Our own true freedom is only found when we are in the environment which we were designed to flourish in. And that is obedience to God's word. As we live by God's word, we experience true life. Only then can we be said to be properly free? I think he hit the nail on the head. And none of us really want freedom the way the world defines it because technically that would be anarchy. And so these, these commands that Jesus says we must obey and those boundaries that God has laid out in our lives and those structures of accountability that he's designed in his church, that is where a Christian finds freedom. Good, like glorious, life-sustaining, joy-filled freedom. Because when we look into it intently and obey it, it's a blessing to us. And so Alberry finished by saying, life is never better without God's word. And it's never poorer with it. No command will ever work against us if we follow it. And ignoring one will never actually end up being better for us. And then James finishes his thoughts. He, on this by giving us a few examples of what doing looks like. He's telling us be hearers and doers. And so, okay, what kind of doing are you talking about, James? And he says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, people want to say, well, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. 
I, I get what they mean, but it's about both. Because religion, the way that James defines it in his use here, is the outward manifestation of the inward relationship. It's the working out of our spirituality. So yes, relationship is the root, but religion is the fruit. And and there's nothing wrong with religion. There is something wrong with bad religion. There's nothing wrong with organization. There is something wrong with bad organization. And James makes it very clear here that religion is good when it's good. And it's good when it combines the hearing of God's word with true listening and action. There are many ways to get religion wrong. Just like there are many ways to do business wrong. But that doesn't make the concept of business bad. It makes bad business bad. And we are in the business of hearing and doing the will of God. Not, not a financial business, obviously, but a spiritual one. And the question is not whether we should be religious, because we must. We are. Every spiritual person really is. And so if someone asks if you're religious, the reality is you better be, or otherwise you're saying that your faith doesn't come out, right? It stays inside. And then we would fit right into the Pacific Northwest culture of being spiritual, but not religious. Which is not That's not even real. Because everyone's beliefs come out into their life. Everything that you do is because of what you believe. And so the question is not whether we are religious, but whether we practice good or bad religion. And James gives us a couple of examples of what good religion looks like. Controlling our tongues and helping the helpless. Now again... In chapter 3, James is going to go into a lot more detail about the tongue and how dangerous it is when we leave it unbridled. And so I'm not going to focus on that and spend too much time on it. But I did want to share this story about John Wesley because it was just too good not to share when it comes to the tongue. Uh, Kent Hughes shared it. He said, once while John Wesley was preaching, he noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her critical attitude. And all through the service, she sat and stared at his new tie. When the meeting ended, she came up to him and said very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. He asked if any of the ladies present present happened to have a pair of scissors in their purse. When the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and asked her to trim trim the streamers to her liking. After she clipped them off near the collar, he said, Are you sure they're all right now? Yes, that's much better. Then let me have those shears a moment, said Wesley. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of a correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out. I'd like to take some off. (laughs) He even talked about another time when someone said to Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. And Wesley replied, well, that's one talent God wouldn't care a bit if you buried But really, you know, we are lying to ourselves if we think that our time at church and our devotions at home and our offerings and our service to the people of God or the world around us mean anything if they're disconnected from a life of, of integrity and repentance and love for others. God made his attitude about this kind of thing very clear to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 17, 
Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. When I read those words, I see a a stark connection to the words of James and what he's teaching us. Who cares about your religion if your life is full of sin? Maybe you do. Maybe the people sitting around you at church do. Maybe your parents do. But God does not. If we ignore the pleas of those hurting around us, God can ignore ours. If we fail to help the helpless, God doesn't look so fondly on helping us. And all our efforts are in vain If we don't have love. As Paul put it so well in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. But do not have love. I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We must be hearers and doers with love. And not just hearers, And not just hypothetical doers either, because hypothetical doing is not doing. David Plack talked about how concerned he is when Christians think that we just need to be willing to do something for the Lord. And we act like willingness is is virtuous. And so we play these things, these situations out in our minds and we say, you know, yeah, if, if God wanted me to do this, I would do it. I'd be willing. And... The thing about it is we often overestimate our own courage and underestimate the difficulty of whatever situation we're, we're thinking about in our heads. And to be fair, I believe it is important to prepare ourselves mentally and spiritually for things that may happen in our lives. And I think that it's important to try to foresee those things. 
You know, I wouldn't be surprised if following Jesus gets me in prison someday. Or sued or killed. And I need to be prepared for that. Those situations that I am not in. But what about the situations I am in? Right now. Like how I use my time or my money. Like what kind of job I have. Like how, how much effort I put into my marriage. Discipling my children or, or sharing the gospel or helping the helpless. There's no virtue in telling myself, well, I'd be willing to give more if God wanted me to. I'd be willing to serve. I'd be willing to share the gospel. Those questions don't matter. What matters is what does God want me to do? As Platt put it, don't be willing to obey the word. Obey the word. Don't be willing to help the poor. Help the poor. Don't be willing to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Don't be willing to live in purity. Live in purity. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. You see, being a hearer and not a doer is like trying on clothes but never buying them. It's like test driving cars but never owning. Visiting and taking tours of houses but never signing As Kent Hughes said, there's a world of difference between reading a menu and eating a meal. Eat the meal. Taste and see that the Word of God is good. It gives life. Look intently at it, right? Don't use it as a vanity to admire yourself. And don't ignore it because you're afraid of what it's going to show you or what it's going to tell you. And when you look into it, the perfect law of freedom, remember That it is good for you. It is good for us. And so don't be deceived by the lies of Satan and the world. And maybe most of all by the lies of ourselves. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. God, Thank you for bringing us together this morning. This What can we even say? Your word. It's not just words on paper. It's not just stories that we've been told by our parents or our Sunday school teachers. It's not just myths and fables and it's, it's not just something that helps people cope with life. It is life. There are many, many misunderstandings and misconceptions of your word in this world, but we pray that none of them would dwell at Riviera Baptist Church. We pray that this would be a culture of people that loves your word and loves it so much that we actually do it. We actually read it. 
We actually listen to it. And we put it all around us. All throughout the week, all throughout the day. We let it come and dwell inside of us. God, that's the culture we have to have. If we're going to be of any use to you. Because if you look down here at our church and you see vain repetition. If you look down here and you see hearers but not doers. Lord, we are doing nothing that's pleasing to you. It doesn't look good to you. We want to please you. We want to serve you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to bring more and more people to praise your holy name and to experience the wonder and the awe of being transformed by your grace. And that's impossible without a love for the word of God. And we thank you so much that James and along with many others point us back to it over and over and over and over. And we pray that we would be listening. In Jesus' name, amen.